0: Greetings, Widow We Do Now family. This is Mel. As some of you know, this last week has been crazy with the starting of school for many people all around the country. This is especially busy for us as Anita has lots of responsibilities. So stay tuned for a brand new episode next week. But for this week, enjoy our exclusive interview with licensed marriage and family therapist, Christy Nauman, who specializes in EMDR, because we could all use more therapy, right? This is an episode we recorded at the beginning of the pandemic, and there are many very valuable tips and insights in this podcast. And as you also know, we are a partner with BetterHelp.com, and we support everybody getting the help that they need in the mental health department. Our listeners receive a 10% discount off their first month, and if you cannot afford therapy, they have financial aid options available. So please check it out. Get some therapy. Visit BetterHelp.com WWDN or click the link in our show notes and get started on a better journey for your mental health. And stay tuned for our replay of episode 20, Therapist Christy Nauman. Our special guest is LMFT Christy Nauman. Yay! Applause! Does that stand for Licensed Marriage and Family Therapist? Oh, yes. uh, I thought it was licensed mother effing therapist (laughs) only for you Mel only for you so Christy's daughter was going to write a really amazing bio for her but she did not get to it she's very busy so will you Christy tell us a little bit about yourself you bet um so as Mel
2: said I'm a licensed marriage and family therapy therapist I have been um practicing for about eight years um, before that, I graduated from BYU in family science and then promptly started my family. And um, I'm a mom of six and that took a lot of time. So when I got to be about 40 and I had a lot of people die in my life, I decided to go back and get my master's because that's what you do. You know, you have to rediscover who you are when death kind of comes into your world. So I decided to do that at 40 and um, have been working with couples and individuals and teenagers, all sorts of family issues. Um, grief is one of the things that I do a lot of work with just
0: because everybody has grief. Everybody
2: experiences it.
0: So that's a little bit about me. Awesome. Will you tell us a little bit about the situation surrounding your your choice to go back to school with your multiple deaths?
2: You bet. Um, So I got a call Sunday morning, May 2nd, and my dad was sobbing. And my dad was 81 at the time and not a man that is given to sobbing and said that he had come downstairs and found my mom had passed away. She was in the, the motion of crocheting. Her hands were holding the the yarn and the crochet hook as if she were just doing a a stitch and her head was just back. Her mouth was open and her eyes were open and it's like her heart just stopped and it was really quick and painless because there was no pain look on her face. It was just, she was just gone and that was a huge surprise for our family. She was a huge part of our lives. And so at that point, that was May At that point, my second oldest sister was diagnosed with stage four breast cancer. And um, she decided not to have any treatment. And so she, um, in uh, October of that same year, um, also passed away from the effects of breast cancer. And then... Um, Two weeks after we buried my sister, Nancy, um, my dad was diagnosed with geoblastoma multiform 4, which is the most aggressive form of brain cancer that you can have. Um, He decided to have it operated on that he never recovered his anything. I mean, he couldn't walk. He couldn't take care of himself. So um, just a week And a a year and a week after my mom had passed away, my dad passed away. And then the week after that, my niece, Jenny, passed away. And then I had two uncles within three weeks after that, within the same month, um, also passed away. So within a year, there were one, two, like six deaths in my family. And it just rocked me it. It just shot out all the foundations that I thought that I had, and so I really found myself adrift, not knowing who I was. My parents were gone. I was an orphan. I mean, that's. I mean, I was forty, but I still, uh, you know, I was. I felt gypped because my kids were little. I'm the youngest of nine. Um, I felt jipped that they, my kids, weren't going to know their kids um, or their grandparents, and you know, So, it was. It was a bit of a struggle. It was a bit of a struggle and I kind of disappeared in my studies. And luckily I have a really amazing husband that Mel can attest to who let her live in my basement for a time with her dogs, who he is allergic to. Um... <laughs> Thanks Wayne. You're the best. <laughs> he is, he is the best, but I kind of disappeared into my studies. I, I, I felt like I had to, um, in order to survive the grief. Um, but in the learning and the growing and the becoming, um, I figured out how to grieve and how to kind of swim in it and allow it to be part of me and not just push it aside and disregard it, but actually to let it be present and acknowledge it. And and by doing that, it became more of my ally. It became more of something that I could rely on and um, not in a dark, sinister way and. Um, but in a
1: I'm alive and I feel
2: kind of way.
1: That sounded totally like a therapist <laughs> and amazing. <laughs> I thought it was
0: interesting that you said that grief is your ally. And you mentioned, mm-hmm. you like described it a little bit, but can you tell us some details about that? Because for me, sometimes I feel like as long as I shut off my feelings and everything's just going smoothly that's when things are mm-hmm. quote good. And then I'll have a, mm. like last night I had like PTSD dreams and I'm like, I'll see Scott in the dream. And then it's like, it destroys me for like days. And then I'm upset mm. and I hate that. And so for me, it's it's interesting to hear you say that grief is your ally, but I wish that I could, you know, I'm learning, I'm learning through this journey, like how to do that. Can you tell me how it's your ally? How was it your ally? Like, when did you, how long did it take you to get to that place, and then what different forms has it taken as an? Act? Um,
2: probably, um, it it took a while. I feel like I didn't really, um, I didn't really grieve until probably the summer after my dad died. After like after the wave of death happened, um, I don't feel like I grieved. I don't feel like I grieved for my mom really hardly at all. Um, until after, so it felt like, um, everything was on hold and I just had to, I just had to get through. We just, we had to sell her their house. We had to, my dad got married in that, in the midst of that before he got sick. Um, you know, and then we went and took care of my sister, Nancy. And then I started school that January. And then, you know, my dad came out of surgery and then had all of this recovery. So there was, um, there was a lot of, I'm just going to put it on the shelf. I'm just going to put it on the shelf. I'm just going to, I'm, I'm setting it aside. I've got to get through this. Right. Um, So it definitely didn't act as my ally at that time. It was, it was really a burden. It was something to put away. It's something I, I was running really fast from, but that summer after my dad died, when I started to feel when I started to have weight, like, I'm standing in the ocean, and sometimes it's calm, and then suddenly a huge wave comes, and it just knocks me flat on my butt. And then I'm trying to get back up, and I go, I go along pretty well, and things are just kind of a little bit wavy. And then I'm, you know, another wave just knocks me down. And I started to recognize my my pattern, or or how I how the 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 grief would come for me. Um, and it, it was always around family time. It was always around memories. It was always around. I mean, there are certain things that, that made it kind of rise up and, and that, that was definitely, um, so hard to know how to do, to know how to do, you know, that, but once I started to recognize that rhythm and, and how it was moving through me, then it was almost like I could anticipate the wave and then I rode the wave rather than it having it knocking me down. It actually propelled me forward to do things that I, you know, like opening my private practice. I never would have done that. Um, and, 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 it, you know, there are just some things that it, it propelled me to do. And that's why I say, you know, if I made it through that, I can, I can do anything. And it, it's, it really, does, does that make sense? That's, that's how I, I started to be able to feel that and not that it was just this horrible thing anymore, but as I anticipated it and I, and I worked with it and I let it lift me and I it, both up and down, um, Then I I learned how to allow it to be my ally rather than fighting against it. So basically,
0: you're a grief surfer.
1: I'm a grief surfer. Yes. Cool. (laughs) I love that. Got it. So um, we've talked about this before, but I think that I'm in a stage where I'm still trying to figure out um, the rhythm of my grief because... Mel and I have talked about how sometimes I expect there to be those big waves, and then the big waves don't come, and then sometimes just out of the blue. And it's so frustrating to not be able to anticipate that because you are just getting pummeled by waves sometimes. But actually just today I was um, noticing that something that I can anticipate a wave coming from is the things that my husband used to do... And only he used to do. So, for instance, he we have a bike trailer that hooks onto the back of the bike. We call it the bike train. And he always put on his bike and he took the kids for rides, right? Only him. I never did this. He was the only one. He would take the kids for a bike ride. So, when my kids were, like, um, a couple weeks ago, they were just begging me to set up the bike train. And I got so grumpy and I was just, like, in this bad place. And it was because... Like, that was making me confront, like, dad's not here, you have to step in. And then just today, they were like, mom, can we set up the hammock? I never set up the hammock. That was always dad who set up the hammock. So again, grumpy, like, irritable, and I was like, oh, like, I'm noticing something here, a little bit of a pattern to that. So it's interesting that you say that. I'm just in the stages of trying to figure out some of the ebb and flow of it, and it's hard. It's, a little, it's tricky.
2: And and it, it wasn't always predictable. I don't want it to seem like, you know, it's like, oh, there's a song. Oh, there's a, you know. Th-
1: Sometimes we assume that unless we had a huge life insurance payout, we don't really need to know anything about investments or even finances. But guess what? A little knowledge of finances is critical for all of us. Maybe your partner was in charge of that stuff, and now you find yourself making all the decisions. Maybe you're mad about that. Maybe I am. Nicole from the He's Gone But the Money's Not podcast is here to help. She tackles financial literacy by telling the stories of women and widows and finance experts and shares the lessons they've learned as certified financial planners. Whether you know a lot and feel confident in your financial decisions or feel unsure about all of that stuff, there is more to learn. Listen and subscribe to the He's Gone, but the Money's Not podcast on all podcast platforms. This ad was paid for by Rock House Financial and SEC Registered Investment Advisor.
2: Last time we had Easter, my mom was in my back. Right? It, it's not. It's not always that way. There are unpredictable parts about grief. Those waves that just, it's like those rogue waves that take you like you think you're you're fine and then suddenly yeah. you're driving down the road and you see a stupid billboard sign and it's like <laughs> <laughs> you know I, it's it's sometimes it is just random and um, i just i just try to really find a way to be okay with being knocked down rather than just trying to fight against it and allowing the wave to just take me where yeah. it would and, and that that took that took a lot of practice. and you know I and every every experience is different. Um, I still had. I still had a huge foundation of family and friends to, you know that were dealing with similar situations. I wasn't I wasn't alone trying to deal with the grief. I had like we were we were arm in arm with the same grief, my sisters and
1: my brother. And that made a huge difference, huge difference. So Christy, I have a bunch of questions for you. Um, so my first question is, is there are like a million types of therapists, I feel like, right? So you're in a licensed marriage and family therapist. There's licensed clinical social worker. I feel like there's like two other acronyms for them. Can you explain what the difference between the different versions of therapist and also like are there certain specialties that are better suited for certain, you know, situations?
2: Well, let me let me explain the acronyms, the letters behind the name first. So licensed marriage and family therapy. Um, we focus a lot on what's called systemic theory, the family system and um, and how the family system works together. Within the the family system, everyone has rules and roles that they play, and they play off each other. For example, um, in a in a family that has an individual that may struggle with anxiety or depression, that person becomes the identified patient in the family. Everyone sees them as the sick person. They always take the most energy. Um, They get a lot of attention. And, and if anything were to change, if that person were to try to become well, what the system tends to do is keep that person sick so that the family system can continue to be functional and the status quo is right. maintained. So marriage and family therapy, we look a lot at family systems. Um, I do a lot of couples therapy because of that. I'm um, looking at the emotional connections between families. Um, That doesn't exclude me from doing individual work. And I work a lot with trauma because that's an interest that I have. But um, modality-wise and philosophy-wise, we're looking at family systems a lot more. Um, Licensed clinical social workers, LCSWs, uh, they typically take a, a broader community look at things. So they're going to be looking um, like social workers typically start out working in the community for DCFS, um, Division of Child and Family Services. Um, That's kind of their their forte to begin with. And then but they're also not limited. They can work with individuals. They can work with families. They can work with couples.
0: Okay, so LMFT, LCSW. Are there more? The
2: last one is um, the mental health. It's M M H C M H C H. Mental health clinical It's it's something like that. It used to be licensed personal counselor. They used to be LPCs. (laughs) But it's M M H M C. But anyway, it's something like that.
0: M I C K E Y M O U S E. (laughs) M F T. (laughs) <laughs> Maybe it's the CMHC, Clinical
2: Mental Health Counselor. That's what it is. Clinical CMHC, yeah. Clinical Mental Health Counselor. And I hear they... a
1: niner in there somewhere? I... <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: um, and they typically look more towards addictions. They have a, a really rigorous training um, around addictions and the addictive brain. That doesn't mean it excludes them from doing any other types of therapy, but typically their
1: specialty is more in line with
2: addiction recovery. So within,
1: within each of those categories, are, are there specialties that you um, specialize in after you've gone through schooling? Like, you know, you can be a doctor and then you become a cardiologist. So, like, do therapists generally have, like, a subspecialty, um, like, Are there people who specialize in grief or are there people who specialize in, you know what I'm saying, like are all counselors, you can go to all of them for anything, any of your needs?
2: Well, you can, I mean, technically you can go to any therapist for any of your needs, but to answer your question, uh, almost all therapists have specialties. They all have things that they prefer to do or they're better at. Um, When I started, I was convinced I was going to be a play therapist, that I was going to work with little kids I did it for like three months, and I'm like, oh hell no, I'm not doing that. <laughs> um, I, I mean, and I have six kids, so you think that I could do that, but it was, um, it was slow. It's really like the progress is really slow. You do a lot of play, you do a lot of coloring, you do, and it's just really, really slow progression. And I was just like, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna not be able to do this. So, um, so I. <laughs> So I I really quickly figured out that teenagers um, is a niche that I have. And working with teenagers and trauma, um, attachment injuries, those that are adopted, that's an area that I really, really love, trying to help um, individuals repair attachment injuries that have happened in those early years. And so that's why I worked into um, what's called EMDR, which is Eye Movement Desensitization Reprocessing which is um, a form of trauma therapy that helps the brain reprocess traumatic events, including grief. So that's where um, my specialty kind of um, wraps around grief and, and holds it in. It, grief is not my f- main focus, but it is definitely an area that I feel comfortable because I've experienced it. Uh, as well as being able to walk with someone as they heal, as they you know pull it out, look at it, address it, and then it goes back in in a much healthier, reprocessed way.
0: So I have a question about EMDR and who needs it. So obviously, a young person that has lost a spouse has experienced a traumatic event. Because it's a traumatic event, does that mean everybody that has experienced loss as a young widow or whatever age should do EMDR? Or are there people that benefit more than others?
2: I would say I don't know a person that wouldn't benefit from EMDR because there's not a person that hasn't experienced trauma. Now, if, you know, if we're talking about big trauma, which is being widowed, Um, you know, having a spouse die when you're young, when you have children at home after just a few short years, that's a a big T trauma, right? But everyone has little T traumas that populate their lives from the time that they grow up until the time that they die. So it's my opinion that everyone benefits from EMDR because as the trauma, as the little T traumas start to pile up, it becomes big T trauma and that's when we can get stuck in depression and anxiety because we can't let go of the little T traumas. So yes, grief is a great way to, I mean EMDR is a great way to help and process through grief. Um, But like I said, I don't know anyone that wouldn't benefit from EMDR.
1: Can you just like give us a quick explanation of how EMDR or like what you do, what the experience is for people who aren't familiar with it?
2: You bet. Um, so I have I'll, I have like they're called tappers, and they just they're they're like buzzers that that give a vibration off. and and they alternate side to side, what's called bilateral stimulation. When, the, when that happens, we bring up a memory or an experience that may have been hard or troubling or difficult, and um, they think about that memory, that experience. They allow the memory to like populate their mind, to light up their mind while the tappers are tapping and doing the bilateral stimulation. As they do that, I ask, where are you feeling this memory in your body? Where is it showing up? Because the body stores all of that information, what we feel what we hear, what we see, what we sense, all of that is stored in the very cells that I, of our body. So our body has memory more than just our mind having memory. So I ask for them to bring up that, that, that memory and what, what, how does it feel in the body. And often if it's um, grief-related, it'll be over the heart. It'll be in the chest area and the shoulders. It'll feel heavy, like it's hard to breathe and that's a really typical place where the body stores grief and sorrow. And as they bring that up, I'll ask them, you know, to allow that to just sit in their body. Um, I'll I'll then incorporate maybe a negative thought that they might have around that experience like um I'm not good enough or I'm never going to feel better. This is the I'm I'm always going to be broken. Uh, anything like that. And then we tie that together with the emotion and the memory. And then what we'll do is we'll reprocess with those tappers going. We'll allow them to just kind of sit with that image. Um, and it's it's usually eyes closed processing. So it's a lot of internal processing. And what happens is we bring that memory um, forward into the, the short-term memory banks. And we look at it in different ways. So I'll ask questions like, what do you notice about this memory? And a lot of times as we work through it, it'll be, well, it doesn't feel as hard right now. I feel stronger right now. And, and there's, there's a process that the brain starts to move through that enables the brain to resort it and put it back in a way that is um, healing. It is um, in, in a positive way, uplifting and emotional. And often what we'll see is a, a positive thought, a positive cognition at the end, which is, it can be anything. If, if the negative thought was, I'll never get over this. It's like, I can do hard things. I've already done hard things. Um, so in putting it back together, we always um, try to tie it with a positive cognition so that it allows the brain to re-identify this memory and this experience. And then often what happens, almost always what happens is I'll go back and I'll say, what are you noticing in your body? And, um, and if, if it's not completely clear then we'll keep processing it until it is because the body needs to let go of that stress of that memory. And with the reprocessing, it can.
0: Are there times where somebody's trauma may be too traumatic to do an EMDR? Or what would you say to somebody who's like, well, I don't want to bring all the memories up. I just want to, you know, get through therapy, but that sounds really scary. <sighs> Well,
2: of course. And so I'm always going to honor that. And um, any any good EMDR therapist is going to recognize that there has to be what's called resourcing at the beginning. Um, I'm not just going to jump into the real traumatic hard memories at the beginning because we need to set a foundation. So we're going to um, create a peaceful place and we're going to create a container that can hold some of those heavy things that maybe we can't process through every time. We're going to um, resource smell and um, touch and you know sight and hear. We're going to resource all of those internally, so that as things get difficult and they do, and um, there's resources put in internally for them to manage it, and we go at the pace that the client can can go. And if they say it's too scary, we put it away and we move to a different we move we move to a different thing. Um, one of the things that I I do is called EMD, so it's it's eye movement desensitization. We don't reprocess, so it's looking at a memory. We 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 stay in the present and we look back and we look at that memory and it's like ooh wow that's really hard. Okay, come back to present how you doing? Let's breathe. Let's breathe. Let's breathe. Okay. Let's go look at it for a minute. And I, all the time my tappers are going right. Cause we, we want that bilateral stimulation to allow the brain to um, see this in a different way. So then we'll look back again. Okay. What's it, what are you feeling about it now? It's getting a little bit less. Okay. Come back to present and we'll do that over and over and over. If there's, if they're not ready to move to that reprocess stage until they are ready.
1: Okay, so I just want to tell you, so both Mel and I have done EMDR and it's it's bizarre, I would say, is the explanation I have for it. Like, I told my therapist that I felt like she was just scrambling my brain and then at the end it was like somehow it felt better. And I was like, I have no explanation. You just made me feel nutty for a minute and then and then I feel better now. So thank you very much. Here's my money. Um, yeah, I, it's it's... That's the best explanation I have for it. But um, it's also a little bit surprising. So when I was doing it um, with my therapist, one of the things that we were, one of the memories we were dealing with was some of the feelings I have about not, um, not cluing in and not catching on to Jason's what was going on in jason and i was feeling a ton a ton of guilt about that so we went into the emdr process and my therapist um you know we went through that same process that you kind of just described and where we ended up was not where she thought we were going to end up And we got to the end and i was feeling really at peace with it and she was like wow it's so interesting what the brain does because you think you can predict what it's gonna and it just kind of meanders its way to where it feels good about it You know, and and where I felt good about it was not trying to convince myself that I shouldn't have done anything. It was just that I came to the place where I didn't do anything, and that's it. You know, not trying to absolve myself of guilt, but just trying to, you know, say that this is what happened. So um, it's just really, it's a really interesting, weird thing that I don't even know how somebody figured it out to do it. One gripe that i have and mel has the same gripe is the stupid five stages of grief crap and i'm gonna be very honest right now i have seen a few counselors and even the therapists have talked to me about them as in like telling me about the five stages and i just want to shake them why don't they know shouldn't they know that there's no such thing as five stages of grief
2: yes yes they should (laughs) (laughs) Okay. <laughs> um, because it's ridiculous there are there are a, a million and five stages of grief <laughs> times ten yeah right yeah and and you know I think that was one of the things that um that the people that I work with that, in grief I have a I have a picture that that and um, talks about uh, you know it's a it's a horseshoe
1: yeah we actually have that on our we put a picture of that on um good. Um, Somewhere on our Facebook page or on Instagram, so we know what you're talking about. Keep going, if but you don't. But still, know
0: tell you- us about it because our listeners probably don't. <laughs> it, you know,
2: it's it's much more realistic. But even even with that, it looks really clean, and like you're just going to go through this process. And the favorite picture that I have of that grief um, picture is there's like scribbly lines back and forth and back and forth and all over the place, and it's it's not neat and orderly. It's a mess. Grief is a mess and it's, it's your own mess and no one can tell you how grief is going to be for you. And yeah, there are things like anger that you're going to probably feel and there are things like, um, like overwhelming sadness that you're going to feel there. I, there's going to be bargaining that maybe happens There maybe is going to be, you know, shaking your fist at God, that's going to, I mean, there's so many different things, but it, it really can't be uniformly defined. It really is just, it's,
1: it's, it's what you need. It's what, it's what you need as you move through that grief. So along that line, um, when do you know that your grief isn't quote unquote normal, do you know what I'm saying? There, like we know that it's it, it's variable for every single person. But is there a point where you know that, like, you need additional help or something's not right about your grief process? Does that make sense? That question.
2: Absolutely, um, because grief can um, kind of dip you into some mental health issues like depression, like anxiety. If if you get to a point in in grief where it is, well, like diagnostically, if we're looking at a six-month time frame where you're not able to get out of bed, where you're not eating consistently, where you don't sleep through the night, um, and there are no positive days in that six-month period of time, that's clinical depression. And that's where you've got to get help to get your brain back in balance. And grief is one of those things that can knock your brain, your chemicals in your brain out of balance. So going to a, a therapist or even your family doctor and just letting them know that this has been a, a significant, I mean, it, it's, it's gotta be a significant and steady period of time that you're having these symptoms. And there are some really great um, assessments, and you can do them. I mean, they can be self-assessments. You can look them up online, and you can do them. One is called the PHQ-9, and that's the that measures depression. And the other one is the GAD-7. And literally, you can Google that, and you can self-score yourself and be like, oh, snap, I've, you know, if I've got major depression and I've had that for a substantial amount of time, I really need to get in and look at maybe some medication that's going to help to balance out the chemicals in my brain.
0: So one thing that I learned about in this grief journey that I did not know about before was that it's totally normal to be this way that I'm going to describe. But I also didn't know this term. And the term that I learned was, being passively suicidal. How common is that? And can you tell a little bit about it?
2: Passive suicidality is just really, it's, it's like I really don't care about being alive. And it would probably be a lot easier for me and everyone else if I just weren't here. The difference between passive suicidality and active is active is I'm going to be looking for ways or plans to end my life. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to be thinking about it nonstop, planning about it, looking for ways that, Ooh, this, this would work that that's, that's active passive is you're sitting in your car and the train tracks right in front of you. And you're like, man, it should be nice if that train would just hit my car. Right. That way I wouldn't have to deal with anything. It just would be, it just would be done. Or you know you're driving and it's like I think I'm just maybe you know I bet if I could just swerve right over there and just run into that wall that wouldn't be so bad and so it it's 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 fairly common especially um, like probably within the first six months of a pretty intense. Um, experience with grief and loss especially when you're dealing with um, like your your person that leaves you know whether your spouse um, whether or a child um, someone close like that often that that is it's easier to imagine being dead than it is continuing to be alive
0: did that answer your question yes I just thought it was so interesting because it it's like when we hear anything with the word suicide in it, we just think it's active suicide, act, being actively suicidal. And I've learned since that there are so many that feel passively suicidal, but didn't know that there are words assigned to it. So and it's tough. There's a lot. I mean, you don't even have to go through a dead spouse to have something like that. Like, it's, you know, of course, because trauma and grief is universal and lost. Yep. But first of all, you have to recognize that you are passively suicidal to do something about it. Correct. Correct. Um, say that you have recognized that what are some things somebody could do if they are feeling that way so
2: one of the things that I like to to talk about is recognizing that grief is a form of trauma so if we're looking at trauma as a whole and grief fits under that umbrella and it affects your brain in a different way so in the center of your brain is your amygdala, which is the emotion center. If you've ever seen the movie Inside Out, um, it's it's all of those little um, blobs of color, the anger, the happy, the anxious. It's all of those blobs kind of running the show. And that's your amygdala. Um, and when, when you have a trauma, and like I said, grief fits under that trauma umbrella, your brain kind of gets stuck. In that trauma, and it doesn't respond the way that it normally would without the trauma. And so things that that might be easily managed before you've experienced the trauma suddenly become like huge events, and your amygdala goes Wah! and it freaks out and it disconnects your prefrontal cortex, which is your thinking brain. And it says, nope, I'm in charge. We're going to be flooding your body right now with adrenaline and cortisol. And cortisol is a stress hormone. So it does this over and over and over in response to trauma. And so when you have an elevated or an activated amygdala, then your brain just has a really, really difficult time calming down. So I love to um, use your senses in calming the amygdala. So really, and and I call the amygdala Amy because it's really hard to say amygdala over and over. So Amy, we want to distract her. We want to get her out of this activation stage. So that means, you know, um, smelly lotion or uh, an altoid in your mouth or chewing on ice or listening to some music, going out for a walk, some sensory um way of
0: of of being able to calm or distract Amy so is that in the category of a grounding technique yes okay I had heard of that before like with like PTSD sorts of things and like if you are like hyper vigilant or you're you cannot get your brain back to like the here and the now Mm -hmm. that it's helpful to like hold on to something and describe something or tap your fingers or tap your toes so it's considered a grounding it's a grounding grounding. yeah we're
2: just trying to distract amy because if amy can be distracted then your prefrontal cortex your thinking brain comes back online and it's like oh i think
1: i'm okay excellent okay i have one question that's kind of not that serious but a little serious um and then i have one more serious question but i think it's a good i think it's a good question i mean obviously because i came up with it but um do you really get offended when you get fired because you know like people are your therapists are always like you know you have to click with me and if i don't if we don't click it's fine but like really do you feel like that or you like really feel sad when somebody's like you couldn't help me i want somebody else um well (laughs) I, i don't i don't get offended I do feel sad I, I do feel sad because there's a part of me that wants to help everyone that's that's what I, I that's what I felt like was the truth but I felt like people were lying about it so I'm just glad that you were honest about it <laughs> I do say to my clients if
2: if you're not feeling a connection with me I don't have the time or the energy to be offended and I really don't because it's not about it's not about them getting help from me it's about them getting help. I do believe okay. that I can help most people. Um, I've only had probably two people in my career that have one that that I kicked off of my caseload and one that,
1: that aced out. Wait,
0: so. I want to <laughs> hear about the drama. <laughs>
1: <laughs> HIPAA says no. <laughs> so, um, we don't know their name. That's true. Can you explain the difference, um, what happens emotionally between a quick and sudden death and a long and drawn-out death? Are, is the response in the body different for those two scenarios? Absolutely. Explain.
2: So I'm, I am I have actually personal experience with that because my mom's was quick and sudden and my dad's was long and drawn-out. Um, quick and sudden is is an abrupt um, attachment injury. It is, it, it's like a, a sudden a sudden thing that your brain doesn't know how to comprehend. It doesn't know it's it's such a, an abrupt attachment injury um, that the brain literally spirals out of control for a while. And that's often when the PTSD stuff kind of sneaks in where we're hyper hypervigilant, we have nightmares, or we can't sleep, or um, it's it's much, much more long-lasting traumatic-wise than a slow... Processed death, because with a slow processed death, your brain has the opportunity to recognize the end, even though you don't know exactly when it's coming. It is a process of of saying goodbye. So it is an attachment injury, but it's it's like okay. And Mel, you can just close your ears and you can probably just cut this out. But it's the difference between a a, a cut episiotomy and a torn episiotomy.
0: (laughs) Okay, poor Mel. (laughs) I'm scared of nothing. You guys don't know about my rope swing accident. Yes I do. Yes, I do. And I want to block that from too. my mind forever. I do too. So, um. so I am allowed to be part of the conversation. <laughs>
2: but it, it's it's just one is a little bit more clean and precise, and one is jagged and messy
1: and a little bit harder to heal from. Interesting and gross. Thank you for that visual.
0: <laughs> okay, Christy. Yeah. So one thing that I've noticed and we've noticed is, I mean, everybody, their trauma is the worst thing to them. And so it's so easy to compare. It's like, well, yeah, but mine's worse because, like, I had had no chance to have kids. And Anita could be like, well, mine's worse because I have kids and now I have to take care of them and I'm doing it alone. Or someone could be like, well, I had this happen and this is the worst. First of all, please tell us how unhealthy that is. And not that Anita and I, like, do that to each other. I'm just, like, putting examples out there for people that are listening because, like, it all goes through our minds. Right. For sure. I
1: wanted Christy to weigh in and tell us which was worse. (laughs) Okay, answer Mel's question. Go ahead.
0: <laughs> yeah, can you please tell us about that and how unhealthy it is and how we can stop doing that in our heads? So there's just no way to compare. It, it, it's not comparable
2: because it's, you're, you're looking at two individuals who have had a different upbringing. They have a different support system. Even if, Even if two individuals had exactly the same life, they can have a different response to grief and loss, and and so one isn't one isn't worser, um, because of circumstances. It it just is how we process it, how we manage
1: it. It's our grief. It's our experience. It's it it can't be compared. I just listened to a podcast with Brene Brown and David Kessler, and I loved what he had to say about it. And he's a He's like a grief researcher and he was saying that whatever happens to you is the worst it always will be like that's that's what the worst is is whatever happened to you so yep.
2: you because just, how can you?
1: you how could i there, understand
2: how could i possibly understand what it's like for you my my life isn't yours i i don't have the same situations. I, I can't, I can't step, you know, people say you, you'll never understand until you walk a thousand miles in their shoes. It's true. And I never, I will never understand because it absolutely, my grief is worse and your grief is worse. It just is.
1: Okay. We have one final question for you. Are you ready for it? I'm ready. Okay. So what's the first or the most valuable or the most helpful coping technique that you teach to people who are going through um, grief or trauma? Is there one? And if there is one, can you share it with us? So there is so
2: much research out there that says if you can connect to a higher power, it will help to calm your brain. So along with using your senses And those grounding techniques that that we were talking about earlier, really the element and principle of connecting with a higher power and allowing the burden of your grief to be shared by that higher power calms the brain.
1: That is not what I was thinking you were going to say. So actually, I'm kind of excited because I feel like you told me something new. So thank you. (laughs) You're welcome. Christy, thank you so much for joining us.
0: You are the best. And your hair is pink. I would like everybody to know that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I think that this was so interesting. And hopefully it was really valuable for um, our listeners to be able to get a little inside peek into the therapy world. And that some of those questions were hopef- helpful, hopefully, or whatever. We don't really care.
2: You know, and I, I guess my goal is to, to maybe... Take away the stigma a little bit more of going to a therapist because the reason that that we are trained in the things that we're trained in is because the brain sometimes just needs – the brain and the heart and the body needs some help. So going to see a therapist is actually one of the bravest and the most healthy things that a person can do because staying – keeping it all inside and not letting it out, it just – it's going to get out in one way or another. So by asking for help and allowing someone to to walk with you on your journey, that's the best, the best way to get to a better sense of, of self. Wow.
0: You can surf together over the waves <laughs> of grief.
1: Yes. Cool. cool. Thanks for joining us today. We hope that you found this to be useful information. Let us know if you have any questions or if there's anything that you would like to share with us. You can get to us on facebook and also email and we will see you the next time we come up with a time to record a podcast during the apocalypse which is a whole other thing (laughs) yes i'm mel i'm anita and i'm christy and we're just two young widows and a therapist (laughs) trying to figure out widow we do we now do
0: now there's like a half a second delay <laughs> it's bad and so, like some and sometimes like your work yeah it's bad days. this is my favorite thing to discuss with you tell me what well, is it one of my favorite things i do enjoy tacos and cheese and dogs this is about how you cannot pay hundreds and hundreds of dollars for a phone plan, especially when you're a widow, your person is dead, you might have kids, you might need another option, and you just want your phone to work, you want unlimited texting and service, and you want it to be like
1: 25 bucks a month